0: We'll read in Second Peter chapter one, beginning at verse 12. Hear the word of God: "Wherefore I shall be ready always to put you in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and are established in the truth which is with you. And I think it right, as long as I am in this, am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that the putting off of my tabernacle cometh swiftly even as our Lord Jesus Christ signified unto me. Yea, I will give diligence that at every time ye may be able, after my decease, to call these things to remembrance. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there was born such a voice to him by the majestic glory This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice we ourselves heard, born out of heaven, when we were with him in the holy mount. But we have the word of prophecy made more sure, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of private interpretation, for no prophecy ever came by the will of man, but men spake from God, being moved by the Holy Spirit. Amen. The past two days we've been speaking of the high authority of God's written word. The high authority of God's written word over against the concessive view of the Bible sponsored in the modern synthesis theologies of our day now this doctrinal truth about the bible that i have been preaching about this truth about the bible is not an isolated or a merely intellectual proposition by any means i hope we've made that clear and that's why our theme has been the bible in the life of the believer the bible in the life of the believer i've been impressing on you that the bible is my lifeline to christ And that explains the necessity of an inscripturated and infallible Bible. That explains the necessity of a word from God. Because without a word from God, there can be no lordship and there can be no salvation possible. And so the Bible has an indispensable role in my life as a believer. It isn't just the beginning of my life, it's the continuation of my life. It is indispensable throughout my life. Because you see, by that infallible word, by that inerrant scripture... I can confess Jesus Christ, confess Him as Lord of my life, confess Him as Savior from sin. But without that word, I am left with the idolatry and hopelessness of modern theology. Well not only is the Bible my lifeline to Christ, but we said yesterday that my response to the Bible in fact functions as my response to God Himself. The way I respond to the Word of God written is an index of my response to the very person of God. We who confess and defend such a high and authoritative view of God's inscripturated word have not made of it I think have not made of it anything other than what it claims for itself and therefore we have not created a paper version of popery. God's speaking is not only indispensable to his covenant purposes not only indispensable to his status as Lord over my life but the whole story of the Bible in fact centers on the speaking of God and man's response to that speaking Moreover, we saw yesterday that Scripture is permeated with the conception and the need for a written word from God, a permanent word from God. And this word makes some very remarkable claims for itself. Namely, it claims that it has a divine quality about it, a divine quality such that despite the mediation of men, otherwise fallible, despite the mediation of men, it directly, unambiguously, and unqualifiedly communicates God's speech to me. And therefore, our response to the message of the scriptures is our response to him personally. That, of course, has definite implications for the life of the believer, for his attitudes, and for his assertions, and for his actions. And so a choice has been set before us in the last two days. And very simply, we can summarize it in this way. It's a choice between hopeless idolatry The idolatry of concessive theology and the choice of enduring the obstinate slur of bibliolatry. The slur of bibliolatry against those who stand with the high view of biblical authority. Idolatrous theologians will ridicule our commitment to God's infallible word, will ridicule it as bibliolatry, preferring to worship an essentially unknowable God on the basis of their autonomous wisdom, Well, where do you stand? We've really come to the watershed, for if you're going to hear the rest of the series on the Word of God and the life of the believer, you have to know where you stand. With those who make concessions, or with those who stand on the high ground of scriptural authority? Will you concede the divine character of scripture, or are you willing to endure the scorn of those who claim that you engage in bibliology? Your response to the Bible is an index of your very response to God. I think I know where you choose to stand. I pray God that that is where you stand, with the high view against the concessive one. Notice these things very quickly about that allegation of bibliolatry that we started looking at yesterday. Bibliolatry is not a position that can be evaluated in definable terms. It's not a dogmatic position. It's not a tenet of theology. And therefore, it's not subject to evaluation. It was never intended to be subject to evaluation as a point of view, as something that might be part of the doctrine of the ongoing history of the church. No, in fact, the charge of bibliolatry doesn't describe anything. It's a connotive term. It's an emotive term. It is, in fact, a slur. A slur against those who have a very high view of biblical authority. And against that slur, not a description, but against that slur, we do not hesitate to recognize the divine character of God's Word, for God Himself says that this Word has divine attributes and divine powers. Just as Christ is the divine human person, so also Scripture is a divine human work. And our submission to the Bible is therefore not misplaced reverence, it's not idolatry in any sense. Moreover, the sting, I think, can be removed from that slur. The sting can be removed when we note that it is not emotively embarrassing to me to take such a high view of the divine word. After all, David himself could assume a position of trembling, a position of awe, a position of adoration before the oracle of God. Of course, an attitude thereby reflecting his response to God himself revealed in the word, recognized as Uh, a word recognized as definitively manifesting his Lord to him. Even as David could lift up his hands to the temple without worshiping the building materials of the temple, he could lift up his hands to the oracle of God without bowing down to the human form, the leather covers or paper and ink of the Bible as we know it today. We need not neglect. We need not be ashamed of. We need not huff at the idea that we raise up our hands to God's holy oracle. Of course, the paper, ink, and leather covers of our Bibles are not divine. That should be obvious to you. But you see, neither are they the Word of God. The Word of God is the message found therein, whether it be in the German language, in a certain type of script, whether it be red letter or black letter. That has to do with the human form of the manifestation, the mediation. But that message is part and parcel of God himself, reflects the very mind of God, and we adore it as we adore him. The divine is found there, just as the divine was in the temple. You see, we don't worship the human flesh of Jesus, per se. We don't believe that the divine attributes were communicated to the human flesh of Jesus. And yet we worship the person. And so we worship the person of God, manifest in the scriptures. We don't worship it as something distinct from God, another divine entity, if you like to put it that way. We rather worship the person Who is revealed to us and so the choice is yours shall you be guilty of genuine idolatry by turning away from god's self-attesting word turning away to an unknowable god that is worshipped on the basis of human wisdom or will you have the ability to endure the scorn of the world because of your adoring attitude towards scripture as a uniquely divine message an attitude and a response, a very high view, which I think is appropriate to, nay, is called for by the scripture itself. I think that such a view will exegetically help you to understand better the Bible's message as a whole. And in fact, such a high view will conform you to that genuine Christian worship of God through the centuries. And so the choice is idolatry or being willing to endure the scorn of bibliolatry. Now this morning I asked What does this high view of Scripture mean in the current distress of the Church over biblical inerrancy in particular? How do the established facts, those things we've just been looking at, how do the established facts of the Bible being my lifeline to Christ and my response to Scripture being my very response to God, how do those established facts bear on the issue of the Bible's inerrant character? That is, how do those two facts Bear on the Bible's quality as being wholly true. Not errant, but true. Wholly true. Wholly true in its reports, in its claims, in its teachings. Some have asked today whether the authority or the infallibility, in fact, of the Bible necessitate the view that the Bible is inerrant, wholly true, in all of its reports, claims, and teachings. Indeed, we've been asked by many. Within the evangelical church and those outside whether biblical authority necessitates the view that the bible is inerrant in all of its claims historical claims scientific claims psychological claims whatever claims they may be by the way the reason just to decide here the reason theologians need to ask whether the bible is authoritative in this area or that the reason they need to divide the bible into sections or into aspects is because the minute you begin thinking that error can creep into the Bible, if you want to maintain any sort of authority in religion, you must isolate the infected area apart from the others. You see, you divide up the Bible, isolate the section that can have the muck of error afflicted, and then we can be sure when we go to the other areas. I mean, the very asking of the question, whether the Bible is authoritative in this or that aspect, is itself indicative of the modern mood of concession. Well, getting back to our question, when we speak of error, Notice, we speak of it in the ordinary and in the common sense way of any language which misleads us concerning the truth. Any language which in that common sense way misleads us concerning the truth. We are not speaking of error in the sense of any deviation from absolute precision. Now there's two reasons we don't speak of error in the sense of any deviation from absolute precision. The first is because the Bible doesn't come to us as a scientific book trying to give us the decimal point. I mean, it's just not true to the genre. That's like trying to read your income tax form as though it were a musical score. It's just not that kind of literature. But more importantly, no statement, I don't care how sophisticated the scientist or philosopher is today, no statement qualifies in the sense of not deviating from absolute precision. No statement qualifies in this sense in every conceivable context there is always a context to be brought to any statement that will show that it is not exactly it is not exactly stating what the question of the context asks all statements must be understood then in their context according to their genre and in short all I'm saying is when we talk about biblical inerrancy we're not talking about any shortcut to hermeneutics one has got to go home and do his homework. One's got to understand the context of God's Word, His claims, the genre, the type of literature it is. But that being said, what does the Bible say to this issue of inerrancy? And how should the issue of inerrancy affect my attitude and assertions and actions? Let me suggest to you that we can, in a sense, illustrate and encapsulate the whole theme of today's message in John 10, verse 35. In John 1035, Jesus is responding to the Pharisees who have accused him of what? Blasphemy. Idolatrous blasphemy. Isn't that interesting how that always comes up in the history of Christian thought? For those who take a high view of Scripture, you see, will be thought to be idolatrous by those who, who are in fact idolatrous. Well, the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, How can you make such claims? You make yourself to be God. And how does Jesus respond? He quotes the Old Testament. Where well, the Old Testament in the Psalm says, "And ye are gods," and then he parenthetically adds, although I'm not sure that it's parenthetical, even though you find it that way in most of your versions, Jesus says, "And the Scripture cannot be broken." Notice how short and simple, but definitive that is. Jesus says, "Scripture cannot be broken." Notice that he's talking about Scripture, the written word of God. He's not talking about the message behind it or the general themes. He says Scripture cannot be broken. It cannot be proved to be an error. It cannot be emptied of credibility. It cannot be crushed and destroyed. It is inerrant. And notice the context of his quote. Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament in a place where it is not really a salvation message, pure and simple. Not in the uh, strictly speaking sense, salvation. There's no isolation and division in in Jesus' approach to the Bible. He can go to even that section of the Old Testament that just in an offhand way speaks of the judges of Israel as God's and make his point. In fact, Jesus' argument, you will see, is based on one word in the quotation. God's. And then he builds an off-fortiori argument. If it's true in the lesser, how much more the greater. Jesus bases his argument on one word of the quote. I want you to let that sink in. The word of God. The Scripture cannot be broken, cannot be proved to be an error. The text of the Bible, even to the word, the single word, is inerrant. In fact, if that strikes you as a high view of biblical authority, you will notice in Matthew the fifth chapter, Jesus applies the same high view of scriptural veracity and validity to the very letters of the words in the Old Testament. He says, not one jot or tittle shall by any means pass away from the law until everything has been accomplished. Our Lord and his apostles looked upon the entire truthfulness and the utter trustworthiness of that body of writings which they called scripture as so fully guaranteed by the inspiration of God that they could appeal to them confidently in all of their statements of whatever kind as absolutely true. They could adduce their deliverances on whatever subject with a very simple it stands written at the end, they could end all strife by such a claim. Indeed, they could treat the written Scripture in a manner which exhibited clearly that they thought Scripture says is equivalent to God says. And I think following that example, the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches us the inerrancy of the Scriptures. You'll notice how the faith calls all the books of the Old and New Testament in their entirety Holy Scripture, or the Word of God, written, all which, the confession goes on, are given by inspiration of God, who is the author thereof, being himself truth itself. And accordingly, the confession declares all these books of the Old and New Testament in their entirety to be the infallible truth and divine authority. In chapter 14 of our confession, you see this, uh, this view of Scripture comes to a, a startling application when the writers of the confession say that by saving faith, by saving faith, a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself speaking therein. By saving faith, the Christian will take whatever is taught in the word as true on the basis of the fact that it's God himself who speaks in that declaration. Every bit of Scripture is wholly true in its claims and teachings. And so the attitude of the Christian, the attitude of the man saved by the grace of God is, if God asserts it, it is so. Let God be found true, but every man a liar, as Paul said in Romans 3. Now while I'll be maintaining tomorrow morning that the inerrancy of Scripture is not a sufficient way to talk about biblical authority, this morning I maintain it is a necessary way to speak of biblical authority for the God that we worship is not ignorant. There is no creature that is not manifest in his sight, though all things are naked and laid open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He's not ignorant of anything. And this God, who knows everything, doesn't ever lie. Indeed, as Hebrews 6 says, it is impossible that God should lie. And scripture is completely the word of this all-knowing, completely non-lying God. All scripture is inspired by God, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3. Indeed, it was written as the word of Christ who claims to be the truth itself, written under the influence of the Holy Spirit who is called the Holy Spirit of truth in John 14. And thus it produces a scripture of which Christ, the word and truth of God, was willing to say, Thy word is truth. You see, it was the word of God who spoke of scripture. It was the truth of God who spoke of the veracity of scripture when he said, Thy word is truth, and therefore Scripture is inerrant, wholly true, never to be found false, never misleading in its claims and its teachings. And so, what do the established facts of the last two morning mean to the view of biblical inerrancy, or the question of biblical inerrancy, as it's distressing the Church today? I said yesterday that your response to God's reports, claims, and teachings in Scripture is your response to God Himself. And so I ask you, can you conceivably think of yourself reacting to his claims in any area of life, his claims in any area, can you conceive of yourself as ever saying to the very face of God, I'm not sure, I think maybe that's wrong, or in fact, God, you've made a mistake. That isn't possible for the Christian man. The man who lives under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the one who knows Christ as Savior, can't say to Jesus Christ, you're wrong. To ascribe this high view, to ascribe this perfection to Scripture that we've been speaking of, is also to confess something of your own attitude, you see. To say something about your own admiration of Scripture, to say something about your position before it. The problem of inerrancy, very simply put, is not merely a theological puzzle. It isn't something you can just banty about, you see, when you're trying to get into an interesting chit-chat on theology. It is a matter of self-examination. It's a matter of rethinking your criteria, your standards. It's a matter of thinking about your relationship to the Lord. Could David say when he said the law of God is perfect? all oh, but it's making mistakes here and there. Could Jesus who said the word of God the scriptures cannot be broken turn around and then say but they make mistakes in this or that area of history no I say that your response to God's reports and claims your response to God's teachings is your response to God himself and that's why we affirm the inerrancy of scripture the God who is holy truth itself cannot lie cannot be mistaken cannot mislead he has not made an error not even one in the scripture but then secondly and lastly it's also a matter of considering your relationship to the savior not just your response to the lord but your relationship to the savior let me leave you with this question how can you be sure I don't say how can you hope I don't say how can you long for I don't say how can you even believe I say how can you be sure how can you be sure that your sins are truly and completely forgiven how can you be sure that you have been justified by the resurrection of Jesus Christ the Westminster Confession says that it is possible for a Christian and desirable for a Christian to have an infallible assurance of his salvation can you have such an infallible unerring assurance that you shall be saved that your sins are pardoned that Jesus forgives you and accepts you into his family can you be sure of that If the word by which he communicates salvation to you falters and makes mistakes, the answer to that is simply that of the hymn writer. Hath scripture ever falsehood taught? Let's pray. Father, we come to you confessing that we have been sinful in our attitudes toward you and toward your word that our assertions have not been accorded to the scripture and a high view of its authority, and that our actions have not been molded by and governed by that word. We ask you, Father, to accept us, to freely forgive us, to fully forgive us on the basis of your promise. We ask you, Father, to indeed lord it over our lives through your word. We ask you to make us your willing servants who respond in faith and obedience to whatsoever You should say to us. And it's in Jesus' name we approach you. I'd like to read for you 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 14 to the end of the chapter. Paul writing to Timothy says, But abide thou in the things which thou hast learned, and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a babe thou hast known the sacred writings which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. For all Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction which is in righteousness, in order that the man of God may be complete, furnished completely unto every good work. Amen. What place, what function does the Holy Scripture have in your life? We've been looking at this theme for three days, we conclude today, but I wonder whether in fact the presence of God in his word and the power of his word has been effective up to this point. I trust that it has been. I trust that in considering your relationship to the word of God, you have stood in awe of his majesty and authority, that you have bowed with reverence before his truth, that you've been convicted of your sins, that you've been led to sing his praise and that your life, in fact, is changed when you consider the place of the Scripture in your life. We began by saying that Scripture is very important to the Christian because it is his lifeline to Christ. You stop and think about that for a moment. Where would you be without the Scripture with respect to Christ? It is, in fact, a lifeline to him. For if there is no word from God, no assured word, no infallible word from God, then there is no Lord, and there is no Savior there is no assured salvation, and there is no discipleship. I said as well that your response to the scriptures is always your response to God himself. And therefore, despite the mediation of men, despite the mediation of paper, the fact remains that your response to the word of God written in the scriptures is your response to his own personal address to you. And therefore, we said yesterday, that you... As a Christian, one who lives under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, one who knows the assured salvation of this Savior, you will submit to every claim and teaching of the Bible. You will submit to it as wholly true, as inerrant. For you can't call your Lord mistaken. You can't respond to his word by saying, I doubt it. You cannot jeopardize your saving relationship with Jesus Christ by saying that his word is afflicted with mistakes. So the Word of God is a necessity for our Christian lives. It's a necessity given God's status as Lord. It's a necessity given His covenant which governs our lives, especially His covenant in terms of its saving purposes for our lives. And this Word is inscripturated. This Word is inspired. This Word is infallible and inerrant. And this is what we have meant in the past three days, why our high view of Scripture over against the idolatrous practices of modern theology with its concession to autonomy. Our high view of biblical authority is such that the Bible governs our lives in the ways that we've been speaking of. Yesterday I said that inerrancy is necessary to a high view of Scripture. And I hinted at that time, and I would take as my theme this morning, that although inerrancy is necessary to biblical authority and to a high view of Scripture, inerrancy is woefully inadequate as a way to describe the authority of the Word of God. That may sound strange coming from somebody who takes his life calling the defense of the truth of God's Word. That may sound a little bit strange coming from somebody who thinks that the inerrancy of Scripture is in fact a battlefront that needs to be fought today, shall be fought today, and will determine the course of the Evangelical Church. But I say to you, inerrancy is woefully inadequate to describe what we mean by the authority of God's Word. Yes, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. It is not, in fact, too strong a word to describe biblical authority, but I want to tell you this morning, inerrancy is too weak a word. It doesn't say nearly enough about the authority of God's word. For you see, the authority of God's word is all-pervasive. And I mean that it's all-pervasive in three senses. It's all-pervasive because it's authoritative at every time in my life and under every circumstance. God's Word is all-pervasive in its authority because it is radical, it is unrestricted, it is unqualified, it is absolute. It covers everything. And thirdly, the authority of God's Word is all-pervasive because it touches upon every type of language we find in the Bible. It takes many forms. And so the all-pervasive authority of God's Word, which is what I really want your hearts to resonate to today before you leave, to see that it is always authoritative in all circumstances, that it is authoritative in every area of life, that it is radical and absolute, and that it is authoritative in every type of language we find in the Bible. The Word of God utters a declaration of God's covenant lordship. If we could just reflect upon that statement and the way the scriptures present that to us, we would get the point of this morning's address. The Word utters a declaration of God's covenant lordship, that is, His sovereign position in relationship to our lives, His sovereign position in every facet of our life. His sovereign position at every moment of our life. God's authority is that sovereign right to govern the total conduct of His creatures, to govern it at all times, to exercise this authority in every area of our life. And that authority of God I've been maintaining this week is expressed in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. The authority of Scripture is the authority of God. The authority of Scripture is the authority of the Sovereign Covenant Lord Himself. And that authority is an all-pervasive authority. First of all, it's all-pervasive because it operates at all times. The all-pervasive authority, the lordly status of the Word of God is seen that Scripture always expresses God's presence to us. What that means is that Scripture always exposes your heart either God's blessings or God's judgment all revelation from God provokes a response for it always achieves its own purpose notice how Isaiah the prophet could say speaking the Lord's word so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth it shall not return unto me void but it shall accomplish that which I please." and every word of God is just like that Every word of God achieves some end, the end destined by God. No word of God is devoid of power. And since the function of scripture is to express the lordship of God, then it will express his control, it will express his authority, it will express his presence. And that means that the word is not just an intellectual object. Again, that may sound strange coming from a professor. But I would give up my professorial seat if I couldn't get that point across. The Word of God is not just an intellectual object. It is a great power as well. It's a great power because of the Holy Spirit's constant presence with the Word, driving it to the heart of man and discerning the intents of that heart and either provoking judgment or moving us to praise and blessing. I think we tend to ignore the power of the Word because we are insufficiently aware of the presence of God speaking to us in His Word but with such divine power we dare not trifle. We can't handle the word of God in the way that is so often portrayed to us that we should. I mentioned this once before, but I again illustrate. You cannot think of your devotional reading of the Bible as in some sense categorically different from your academic study of the Bible. You cannot think of devotion divorced from the study of the word of God. And that's just part and parcel also of the same attitude that would, dis- that would distinguish radically between the lectern and the theological seminary and the pulpit. They are not categorically different. And if they are made categorically different, we do sin grievously against the presence of God in the Word because we trivialize the Word in our devotion, in our preaching. That's not academic. That's not study. That's somehow appealing to the emotions. We not only trivialize our devotion and our pulpits but I think we trifle with our study and teaching and we make them and I say this to my colleagues as well we make them hardening exercises for our students if our study should become something less than the address of God to our students in his word then we make God's word abstract we make it to have little to do with the kingdom with personal commitment with a real sense of prayer and thankfulness that is to say although we may not intend it we make it something of a game. That's why you cannot divorce the study of God's word from devotion to God's word. That's why you can't divorce the lectern from the pulpit. They are part and parcel of one another. And the reason for that is because there's one Lord over our study and one Lord over our devotion and one Lord over our lectern and one Lord over our pulpit. And he expresses in one place his one will to you at all times through the scriptures. God's authoritative word expresses his covenant lordship at all times Then. And any time we deal with it, it has some effect on us, for good or for ill. We are to have the word written on our hearts in study or in devotion. And the writing of that word on our hearts will make us obedient to it, responsive to it, responsive to our Lord and Savior and blessing. Authority of the word is not only all-pervasive because it always has some effect on us and we can't handle it as though it were just some intellectual object. But the authority of God's word is all-pervasive because it is radical and it is unqualified, it is unrestricted. And by that I mean that it's the authority of God himself. And you will notice what the authority of God means, what it means to be the Lord in Scripture. In the first place, it means that God's claims cannot be questioned. That's how radical his authority is. You know, that kind of deference is to be given to nobody else but God, but it must always be given to God. It's very important for the defense of the faith. Those of you who've had apologetics know that. But it's very important for the life of the believer. You can never call into question God's word. It cannot be questioned. You notice how Paul deals with such an attitude in Romans the 4th chapter and Romans the 9th chapter. Just look at Hebrews 11, the attitude of Abraham how Abraham was willing not only to sacrifice his son, but willing to sacrifice his intellect. Abraham knew that the only way God could fulfill his promise was through that one son, that one bare son at the end of his days that he could have, Isaac. And yet God said, take that only son of promise and sacrifice him. I tell you, Abraham was not only willing to sacrifice his son, he was sacrificing his intellect. He said the word of God cannot be drawn into question. That is what it means to be the Lord. It's radical in another sense, too. His covenant lordship transcends all other loyalties. Nothing else can take precedence over the claims of God on my life. There can be no competition. No other gods before Him. And so it cannot be questioned. It transcends every other loyalty. And then finally, it is a radical, all-pervasive authority. Because the scriptures teach us that his authority covers all areas of life. So that whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, it is to be done to the glory of God for the sake of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and in the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Whatsoever we do. And that means the authority of scripture covers every area of life. As Dr. Van Till so wants to say, the Bible is authoritative on everything that it speaks, and it speaks of everything. Now, of course, he didn't mean by that that the Bible was a textbook of atomic physics. But what the Bible says about science is authoritative in atomic physics. The Bible is not a textbook of economics. It is not a systematic presentation and a detailed presentation of an economic system. It would be absurd to claim otherwise, and nobody claims that it is such a textbook. But what the Bible says about just weights and measures, and what the Bible says about not coveting, what the Bible says about not stealing, what the Bible says about concern for the poor, are all authoritative in the area of economics. It may not be a textbook of any of these things, but it is authoritative in every one of these areas. And that's because of the all-sufficiency of God's Word. Scripture is sufficient, Peter tells us, granting everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything pertaining to godliness is delivered to us in the Scriptures. And when Paul wrote to Timothy, he said that you must pay attention to the inspired Scriptures because they are profitable. Now, most evangelical Christians are willing to grant that much of what Paul says. Of course they're profitable. We would have no Lord, we'd have no Savior without the Scriptures. But Paul says they are profitable, and he tells us all the functions the scripture performs, and he says that it will thoroughly equip us unto all religious good works. Absolutely not. It will thoroughly equip the man of God unto every good work. Every good work, whether he be in science, or be in economics, or be in aesthetics, or be in philosophy, wherever it is, the word of God will equip you to be the man of God in that place. That's what, that's the kind of authority we find in the Bible. It's radical. It can't be questioned. It transcends every other loyalty and it covers every area of life. Let's say the Word of God is all-pervasive in its authority, not only because it's always authoritative, working either judgment or blessing for us. It's always authoritative, not simply because it's radical and all-pervasive, covering every area of life. But finally... It is authoritative in an all-pervasive way because it covers many forms of scriptural language. You see, the authority of God takes many forms, and it demands many sorts of response from us. The authority of God's Word is always the same in degree. Don't get me wrong now. It always has the same basic character, the covenant Lord speaking to us. That's an absolute authority. It functions at all times, in all circumstances, and in all areas of life. And yet what I'm trying to say is that that authority of Scripture varies in the specific requirements it imposes on us. What types of statements, what types of language do we find in this Bible which is throughout, through and through, authoritative? Well, we find assertions and statements of fact, to be sure. We spoke of those yesterday. By saving faith, the Christian believes whatsoever is taught in the Word of God to be true. But that isn't all you find in the Bible. Far from it. In fact, you find not only assertions, statements of fact, but you'll find narrative, you'll find commandments, you'll find questions, you'll find promises, you'll find threats, vows, expressions of emotion, poetry, treaty forms, wisdom saying, proverbs, Song, parable, epistle, prophecy, and we can go on and on. Don't you see, the Bible has many kinds of language. And we so impoverish our Christian lives when we don't see that the authority of God is the authority of all those types of language. Scripture is not only propositional truth. It contains other sorts of language. And so don't limit the authority to a propositional function. As though the authority of God's word and the infallibility of God's word meant simply the inerrancy of God's word. That is not sufficient. It may be necessary, but it is inadequate. For the authority of God's word is much more. And I am afraid that we and I so often have a narrow conception of what it means to say the Bible is my authority. Just stop and think for a moment here before we go on. What does it mean to say the Bible has authoritative poems? Now let me anticipate. You immediately thought well, whatever declarations or assertions are to be found or inferred from the poem are authoritative. Well, I think that's true in a secondary sense, but that's not enough. It's an authoritative poem. Or how about an authoritative question? What would that be? Now the Westminster Confession of Faith is a fa- even though it's a historical document and comes from a few centuries ago it's way ahead of uh, modern theology and what I had to say about the authority of God's word. Chapter 14 of our confession, we read in section 2, By this faith the Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word, for the authority of God himself speaking therein. We said yesterday. But the confession goes on. And he acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof containeth, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. We act differently upon every type of language we find in the Bible. There are authoritative poems. There are authoritative questions and jokes and treaty forms. The whole Bible is authoritative for us. We must see the variations of the types of responses God wants. Let's just take a couple of illustrations before we quit. Yes, the Bible has assertions, and they are inerrant. But the Bible also has commands, and clearly when God utters a command, when the covenant Lord utters a command, He does not want us merely to believe that He has said it. What are you supposed to do in response to the commands of God? I believe that God said, Thou shalt not steal. That's not enough. He doesn't want us simply to assent to whatever information may be conveyed by that commandment or presupposed by that commandment, but rather the command demands obedience, right? Right? That's the authority of a commandment. It's not only the obedience of intellectual assent. it's the obedience of my whole life being given over to that kind of behavior. The Bible also has authoritative questions. And it's a shame when we come to the questions of the Bible and they don't exercise that authority over our lives. When you read the narrative of the fall, just think of what what answer is demanded by the covenant Lord when he says, Adam, where art thou? Do you ever hide from God? Where are you? Adam, what are you doing? That isn't a piece of information. That is to change your heart. It's to exercise authority over your life. Or when you read Jesus dealing with Peter after he had, had uh, faltered so terribly and denied his word. When you hear Jesus utter this question to Peter, Peter, do you love me? That question has authority over your life not just over Peter. Do you love him? When you come to the epistles and you find Paul asking, Shall we sin that grace may abound? That question has authority in your life. Yes, there are authoritative commands and there are authoritative questions. There are authoritative poems and songs in the Bible as well. What would an authoritative poem be? Well, Scripture teaches us that the songs of the Bible are a matter of great importance. See, that's very contrary to the modern tendency in songwriting, isn't it? I mean, something's at the top of the charts for a week or two, or even six weeks, and then it's And then you hear it in oldies but moldy times. But that is all there is to these songs. But God's songs are permanent. And God's songs are to be sung by His people in all ages. God's songs are to go to the very bottom of our heart. They are to affect our deepest feelings, and they are to draw forth from us a bursting forth into joyful praise. That's how the song receives its proper response in the scripture. Well, I hope you begin to get the point. What is the place of the Bible in the life of the believer? It's your lifeline to Jesus Christ. And your response to it is your response to God himself. And that means whatsoever the Lord says, you declare to be true. And you hold the Bible to be inerrant. And you let it exercise control over your thought life. But it's far more than that. It means, as we've seen this morning, to to take the word of God is always powerful, either provoking me to blessing or hardening my heart unto curse. The word of God is radical in its authority. It cannot be questioned by anybody. It transcends every other loyalty in your life, and it covers every aspect of life, being all sufficient to make you a man of God. And finally, the authority of the Scripture is the authority of every type of language we find in it. It means authoritative poems and authoritative questions and authoritative command, authoritative narrative. All of the Bible is authoritative. Because the covenant Lord cannot speak without expressing His absolute authority over your life. Why is a high view of Scripture necessary? Why do we hold to the infallibility of the inspired Scriptures? Paul encapsulated it for us when he said the Word of God is inspired and because it is inspired it is profitable to you for teaching for reproof for correction for instruction in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete furnished completely unto every good work God calls you to be complete men of God and he's equipped you with the sword of the spirit which is his word let us pray Father, exercise your covenant lordship over us today. Be our authority, our all-sufficient authority, our highest and ultimate authority, our all-pervasive authority. Make us your servants. Teach us to obey. Teach us to sing. Teach us to give the proper answers to your questions. Teach us to believe whatsoever you say. Teach us what it means to be men of God, perfectly furnished unto every good work. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ and for the sake of his glory. Amen.